Today we're starting a new series, and I hope you are buckled in, because today we need to spend some time uh, talking about Scripture in general, getting more to the foundation of Genesis 1 through 11 than we are going to spend on the individual verses on Genesis 1 today. So I hope you read Genesis 1 today. Uh, if you did not, or before today, if you did not read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 next week, and if you want to read ahead to Genesis 3, you can do that as well. The reason that we are doing Genesis 1 through 11 and not the whole book of Genesis is because Genesis is essentially broken down into two parts. You, you have kind of the creation account leading up to a new creation moment with the flood and then Noah and his family repopulating the earth after all that happened with the flood. And we have a lot of stories that happen in this period of time that don't necessarily fit the rest of Genesis. Most of the rest of Genesis is about, well, all of the rest of Genesis is about Abraham and the patriarchs. And we've spent some time on some of those, and we'll spend some more time on those in the future. Our goal today is to, or these next few weeks, is to look at just the first 11 chapters. So I also want you to be prepared to be able to ask questions. Um, I will at times ask you questions and ask you to give me feedback. This is a time for us to learn and to grow. And as we look back, <coughs> excuse me, at the history of the church, this is one of the ways that the church handled teaching. Uh, and well, not the church as we know it, but how the rabbis in Jewish culture would handle teaching and let those who were listening respond. That's one of the ways we all learn best. Now, today I will be honest with you. I have so much to share with you. I'm not going to ask you a lot of questions. However, there are several things I'm going to go over. You may have some. And if you do, Raise your hand, and if I don't see you for whatever reason, just everyone around them raise your hand and or shout at me or yell at me. You know how that goes. It's nothing personal. I'm not trying to exclude you. But it is important if we're going to get the most out of these next few weeks together that you do not come in here based on a reading you did of Genesis five years ago. You may think, I got it. I know how this story works out. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. After today, I hope you see that there's much more we can glean around the text if we spend some time in it. And today I'm going to share some things you won't necessarily find in the text, but it helps us to understand the point of it and then where we're going to go. As I was talking with several of our teachers here, I was talking about uh, what series we would start the year with. And this has been on my mind to do for a while uh, I wasn't sure this was the best time to do it, but at the same time, is there a better time to do a series about beginnings other than the first of the year and the first of a new decade? So that is not just the title of the series or the beginning of Genesis chapter 1. This is the message that we're going to find throughout Genesis 1 through 11. There is a message of new beginnings. I will give that to you now, and it is not one new beginning but many new beginnings. God is always doing something new. So as we come through this, I want you to be prepared. Today, as we begin to read the text, we are actually going to begin not in Genesis, not in the Old Testament, but we are going to begin in Acts because today we need to look at the overarching theme and story as it is presented, not just in Genesis, but throughout all of Scripture. Acts chapter 17, verse 24 says this, 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should, and this is important if you actually have a paper Bible with you, then highlight it. If you are using version, you can highlight it just by clicking the verse. Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of our own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We have in this short group of verses a lot to work with. What we find is that there is a consistent message throughout the New Testament that is not only upheld by the apostles, but Jesus himself, that God is the creator of all things, that we draw our breath because of God, that God set the boundaries of creation, both here in the earth and everything outside of the earth. God is a creator and his purpose And working through us, as we find in verse 27, is that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. This is the point of the story of Genesis 1 through 11. God has revealed a story of creation so that we should seek God and perhaps feel our way toward him. And more importantly, that we would find him. Now, you probably won't disagree with me on anything I've said already. You may disagree with me on some of the things that I'm about to to go into because one of the true, I'd like to say discussions, but they're more like arguments and fights within the church, is how do we read Genesis 1 through 11? Is it a history slash science message? In other words, if I were to take a poll today and say, did God create the heavens and the earth in seven or six 24-hour periods of time, some would say, absolutely, yes, there's no other way to read it. Others would say, well, I don't know about that. I'm not sure that that's the way that we should read it. I'm not sure that was the intent of it. But as we come to this, many times when people preach on Genesis, they are preaching as a history or science lesson. That is not our goal. I'm going to tell you right up front, that's not our goal. We're not going to spend time trying to battle between science and between history and between what the world says and what God's word says. We're not going to do that. I've told you before, there is no tension between science and faith. There is no tension between science and faith. There is only that which we know, that which we think we know, and that which we are clueless that we actually do not know. But the fact that God has pulled back a curtain in different places through science to show us how he works 
does not negate the faith we have that there is a God who put those things in place. However, our purpose is not to determine, did we, was the earth created through a big bang? Was the earth created through evolution? Was the earth created because God spoke and it came into existence? God took the dust of the ground and created, and here we come? Those are all good questions. They don't really bother me. I'll tell you up front. It does not bother me if God created when he spoke there was a big bang. That doesn't bother me. It does bother me if we all crawled out of the ooze because then there is no creative work of God that spoke and we came into being. But how God brought us into being as he spoke, I am fine with whatever he wants to do there. And I feel like God has earned the ability to do whatever he wants there. Would you agree with me? There are certain places in Scripture <coughs> excuse me, that we get really upset about because we want it to be a literal understanding of the text in which we read. But we forget that many of these texts were written in times and periods and in cultures in which we don't fully comprehend or understand. We have that problem even today. Just ask any of you guys, your parents, to listen to your favorite music and they will look at you like they don't know what in the world is coming into their ears. I don't understand the words, I don't understand the music, I don't understand the beat, I don't understand this at all. And we're talking just a few years difference. When we look at the difference of cultures that have happened over thousands of years, we have to recognize that perhaps our literal reading of something may or may not be exactly what they meant, especially when we today love to get the point in as few words as possible because previous cultures didn't communicate that way. The point was not to get a message across with as few words as possible. In fact, the point was to be as descriptive as possible and to speak as elaborately as possible so you could understand what they were saying. And so my point, my hope, and not through Genesis 1 through 11, that we would determine, thank you, that we understand exactly how God did things. But I do want us to understand that God did things. Now, if we're going to approach Genesis, we have to kind of start with, well, what's Mark talking about? He's kind of rambling on here. We have to kind of approach it from the, part, the perspective of, well, who wrote it? What was its point? How long did it take for it to be written? And exactly what was the message that they were trying to convey? Now, can anyone tell me who Genesis is generally attributed to as the author? Does anybody know? Moses. And even in that, the only place that we understand that, that Moses may have been the author, is that Moses is reputed to be the author of other books of what are called the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch are the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Not only is it reported that Moses wrote those, Scripture says of itself that God told him to write this stuff down. And not only did God tell him to write this stuff down, even in the New Testament, Jesus says Moses wrote this stuff down. So we can understand with some certainty, if we believe the Bible in any capacity, that Moses wrote something the question is, what did he write? If he did, it is purported to be after the Exodus, after they have already left Egypt, before they have moved into the promised land, and that he would write all this down. This would have been somewhere around 1440 to 1260 B.C. In Exodus 17:14, it says, The Lord said to Moses, 
write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. He is telling Moses, write this down. John 5, 46 says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. This is Jesus saying, Moses wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Not only that, we know that Jesus recited at times some of the Ten Commandments, which are attributed to who? Who received the Ten Commandments? Moses. So there is some certainty that Moses wrote something of the first five books of the Bible. However, I will tell you that if you're comfortable staying there and just saying, well, Moses wrote it, which is Possible to some degree, but I will tell you there is a major problem with Moses writing all of the Pentateuch. And that is primarily the fact that Moses, is his death is written about in the Pentateuch. Now, I'm not sure how all celestial supernatural things work, but if you can write about your own death after it has happened, that is pretty, that's a pretty big deal. <laughs> I'm sure there's not many people who could say they could do that. The problem with Moses is the sole author of the Pentateuch. Some of the Pentateuch includes events after Moses' death and including his death. And you can read about that in Deuteronomy 34. It leads us to the question, okay, so Moses definitely could have written parts of it. But which parts? Did he write everything up to his death and then someone else picked up from there? And there are some people that believe that's exactly what happened? Or were there multiple authors that came in to being here? Are there multiple people that contributed to this? There's a second view that has gained popularity in the last couple of hundred years. And we do have to look at it because the evidence is, there is evidence here that the authorship is not necessarily Moses, at least Genesis 1 through 11, but that there are priests during the 6th century B.C., during the Babylonian exile. Now, if that's possible, then that would mean that the text itself was not available to anyone up until 6th century B.C. That means none of the patriarchs had these stories at least in written form, though likely would have been passed down orally, because that's how stories were passed down before things were written down. You would tell stories one after the other. And the incredible thing is, is many places in history have a creation account. Many places in history have a flood account, even outside the Hebraic Jewish understanding of creation and the flood. The fact that we have so many different religions that have these accounts point to a couple of things. One, according to creation, we want to understand where we came from. We want to understand how we were created. We want to understand who God is. Who is the creator? And with the flood, when we get to the flood, we're not going to talk about it today, but when we get to the flood, what is also interesting about the fact that so many other religions from around the world have their own flood account sure gives credence to the fact that there may have been a flood. When some say, oh, that was just literature. And yet we have quite a bit of evidence that some kind of massive flood overtook the earth at some point, and lots of people wrote about it, even those outside the Hebrews. 
If you're a lover of literature, what we also find are some texts that come from one of a, an incredibly rich period of development early in ancient history. It was from a place called Babylonia. It was a city-state in the ancient Mesopotamian Empire. We're talking third millennia B.C., three to 4,000 B.C. If you're not used to studying history, when we talk about B.C., B.C. goes backwards to zero. A.D. begins at zero and moves forward. So 3,000 B.C. is older than 2,000 B.C., even though 2,000 A.D. is younger than 3,000 A.D., Right? So as we look through history, we understand these numbers and we're talking about the Old Testament. We're talking about a time period that the larger the number, the older it is, not the other way around, which is the way we see things today. 2020 is later than 2019, but B.C. 2020 is older than or vice versa. <laughs> Even confusing myself. Two of the primary stories that we that come from this time, and they were known for incredible advances in science and in math and literature. They were also known as an incredibly incredibly religious people, and this religious group of people followed a number of gods, and they had a number of festivals and a number of ways that they would remember their gods, and they would tell stories and myths about their gods and about their religion, and they were a very devout people. And as we look at some of their writings, one of the oldest writings we have of anything is the Epic of Gilgamesh. And it's very interesting in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is potentially written somewhere around 2000 BC, where Gilgamesh is cheated of an immortality by a serpent who eats a piece of fruit from a tree that offers immortality. And if Gilgamesh had eaten the fruit first, he would have been immortal. But since he didn't get there, the serpent was immortal. That sounds similar, doesn't it? I don't mean to mess with our literary or literal understanding of the story, but then we get to the Babylonian story of the Enumo Elish. I don't know if you're familiar with the story at all. This is a really a terrible story. It's good we let the kid mo kids go. But the Babylon story of the Enuma Elish, which is younger than the Epic of Gilgamesh, somewhere around 1300 B.C., there was a great battle between these gods. And in the battle, a warrior was called to champion the cause. Two original gods had kids, and the kids were a pain in the neck. And so they decided they're going to kill the kids. And so as they go after the kids... The kids fight back. And so a warrior is found. And this warrior comes and he decides to fight on the side of the children. And he overtakes the parents and he kills them. There was a great serpent. And in this particular myth, Marduk, who is the great champion, defeats Tiamat, who is the mother and he destroys the body, splits it in two as the, this mother God is about to consume her children, opens her mouth. They shoot an arrow in her mouth. She explodes into two things. And this creates the heavens and the earth. 
And it's really a great story. You should go and read it. Marduk is now in charge because he is the one who has shot the arrow. He is the one who has overcome this great evil. He is the one who has now caused this creation of the heavens and the earth. And all the children praise his name until he says, okay, but now you all have jobs to do. You're going to be the sun God and you're going to be the moon God. You're going to be the God over the earth. You're going to be the God over the heavens. They didn't particularly like that. And so as the story goes, he then takes the general of Tiamat in which he has already overtaken, already defeated. He takes the general, takes the blood of the general and then creates humanity. That's where we come from. And their purpose was to worship the God so that they would feel better about their jobs. And you think, oh, that's crazy. Why are we talking about these ancient pagan weird stories and about dragons and serpents who are being created and their body is being split and they are causing the heavens and the earth. And then we go back to Scripture ourselves and we go, wait a minute, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. You're thinking it does. In Psalm chapter 74 it says, Yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open streams and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have had summer and winter. What is with the Leviathan? That sounds very similar. Why is this in here? It's not the only place. And I read these to you not to cause you to doubt Scripture because one of my greatest convictions is that Scripture has been preserved by God for us to know Him, to seek Him, to find Him. And yet, if we are intent on these early, early texts of saying this is a literal history or science lesson, we have to understand that a lot was going on at the times in which these were written. There was no YouTube in the Garden of Eden. And even if there were, can we even trust what we see on video even more, anymore? <laughs> there was no live streaming. Things were passed down from story to story to story to person to person to person. And then finally somebody decided to write them down. The answer of who wrote Genesis chapter 1 through 11 is simply this. We don't know. Now, we each have to come to the place of, does that matter to us? Does that matter? Does it shake our understanding of who God is? If Moses didn't write it. Or if there was influence in some of these stories that came from other stories that other people tell. If you read it as a science or a history book, then yes, that becomes very problematic for you. But if you read it as a bigger story of what God is trying to tell about all of creation and about us, then it begins to lose its importance on whether or not they were literal events. If you believe that the earth was created in six 24-hour periods of of time, then they very well may have. If you're not certain that they were created in six 24-hour periods of time, they may not have. Does it change the sovereignty of God that God is creator, if maybe he did things a little different than the way we always have assumed. This reminds me of places in Scripture that tell us, just remember that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. God's ways are higher than our ways. 
when we can pin him in a box and say, we get it, we understand it, then God's thoughts are no longer higher than ours, nor his ways higher than ours. So why do I tell you all this? If we read Genesis 1 through 11 as if it's a literal history of creation account, then what we do is we ignore the culture and literary methods of the ancient Israelites. And remember, I don't understand my parents' taste in things, nor do they understand mine. We change over time. We have to embrace the fact that the ancient Israelites did not live life the way we do. Nor did they see the world the way we do. Nor did they act in ways that are predictable in the ways that sometimes our actions are predictable to others in our time and in our place. We can't even go to another part of the world right now and be able to have that kind of familiarity with people because we're different. The ancient Israelites were different. This that was happening, the way they told stories was different. We have to recognize... That if we read it literally, we ignore the way that the ancient Israelites communicated. However, if we read the creation account as only literature, a fascinating story to back up their beliefs, if that's the only way we understand it, then we ignore thousands of years of Orthodox Jewish and Christian belief and the passing down of these stories. That what Jesus said is true. That what these writings say are true that god did in fact create us all and then that brings me to where a better understanding of theology as a whole helps us today not just reading a story here a story here well i understand this about jesus but i don't understand this about the holy spirit i think i really have a good understanding of philippians but numbers is so confusing i have no idea what any of that stuff is about This is why having a whole theology of all of Scripture is so important. And if you've been a believer more than a couple of years, you should be well on your way of this whole Bible theology. If you've been a believer for decades or for years and you don't have a whole theology of the Bible, you are behind. This is what God calls us to. This is not just for preachers. These are for people that say they follow and love God. He says, know me. And that means we begin to put together the whole theology of Scripture. If we ignore the creation account altogether as some fascinating, crazy thing, then we ignore what Jesus said himself is true. Some of our guests today may be thinking, well, Mark sounds like he's talking out of both sides of his mouth here. Is it true? Is it not true? What are you saying? Exactly. Exactly. Does your belief and understanding of who God is and how God works, that God is sovereign, that Jesus is real, is it swayed by what we're going to read in Genesis 1 through 11? Now, we don't throw out Genesis 1 through 11 because of these uncertainties, because they were included for a reason, because they teach us a very valuable lesson. So what is the lesson if this is not meant to be something that we populate our science textbooks about creationism? So what is the point? Why are we going through this? Why are we going to spend time on this? What does the text show us? These are some of the things that Genesis 1 through 11, and specifically the creation account shows us. It shows us who is God and what does he want for us. 
This is a very basic purpose of life, reason for life, understanding. Who is God and what does he want for us? We begin to see that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And we will see that throughout the end of Revelation. Who is God and what does he want for us? The second thing that we see that this text shows us is that God is the sovereign creator no matter how he created If he created in six 24-hour periods of time, praise the Lord. And if he did creation over six periods of time that were thousands or millions or billions of years of time, praise the Lord. And if he spoke and there was a big bang, and now we have this observable evidence that the universe is moving outward, we as Christians don't have to say, well, I don't believe that. Who cares? If God spoke and bang, it happened, which I know is an overused phrase, but if that's what happened, that does not shake our foundational understanding that God is sovereign and created all things. If you want to read this as a literal textbook, go for it. And if you don't, stay true to our understanding that God is sovereign. And the creator of all things. For me, those things just don't shake my faith. I don't struggle with those things. You may, I don't. I made that decision a long time ago. If God wants to do that, God can do whatever God wants to do. I want to know that God is real. I want to know that salvation is real. And I want to know that there is a place for me when this life is over with him. Everything else, he can work out how he wants. When we get to Revelation, which we're not going to do that this year, but when we get to Revelation, we start going through all the things of Revelation. Does, it ha- does heaven have to look the way that John describes his vision? Because I want you to imagine that you take somebody from about 19, let's say 1920, and you take them to a Chuck E. Cheese today. What are they going to think they're seeing? <laughs> and that's just a hundred years difference. Like I saw these things. It was amazing. There were aliens everywhere. And these lights and these celestial beings and this amazing uh, creature with big ears who was clothed in purple. And his mouth would open in a really weird way. But, and, he would, and sound would come out. And it was amazing. So maybe heaven will look exactly the way John describes his vision, but maybe heaven is so overwhelmingly bigger than we can comprehend that he did the very best he could. And we'll see it for ourselves. See, it doesn't matter to me. Those things don't matter to me. I just want to be able to see it for myself. Amen? If they've got weaned creatures flying around with a gazillion eyes on their face, I'm going to keep my distance probably. But that's fine with me. If that's not exactly how it works out, I'm okay with that too. But I do want to know Jesus is real, salvation is real, and I'm going to be with him forever one day. That's what the text shows us. Now let's look at the text, why don't we? It took us a long time to get here today. But let's begin, and I will tell you, we are only going to really cover the first uh, two verses of Genesis chapter 1 today. Uh, And then we're going to start on Genesis chapter 2 next week. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. That word for in the beginning. It's used in Hebrew in a number of different ways, but one of the ways is certainly to talk to mark the beginning of something, but it is almost always paired with an ending somewhere else. In the beginning, this happened, then this happened, and then the end came. This is the way Hebrew literature was written. Bereshit is the Hebrew word here, and it literally means beginning. In the beginning, it is that word in which we get the name of this book, Genesis, because Genesis means the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The word bara is the word that is used, created. Some scholars believe that we misuse the understanding of the tense of that word within this verse. And instead of saying, in the beginning God created, it should say, in the beginning God was creating. Again, I'm fine either way. But I think both work because when we look at our whole theology of the Bible, we see that God is a God of constant new beginnings. Maybe, maybe not constant new earths, new galaxies. Maybe he is. You know, it's God. He can do whatever he wants. We don't know. But as we look at God's work throughout the Old Testament and the New and what he says is coming, and yet we have not experienced yet, there is a constant newness. Constant chaos, a constant destroying, a constant rebuilding. Does that sound like anyone's life in here? It's amazing how God works. And in that creation, has anyone ever wondered if they had just done this one thing different, what their life would be like today? As if that moment determined a fork in the road that you would never have another fork again? Do you want to struggle with that? You know, I always wanted to do this, and I just wish I had, or I made this decision, and it really messed me up, or I'll never go back. I can never get to where I really felt like I was supposed to go because I made this mistake. And and yet, as we look at the story of creation, what we actually find is that God is saying, I am still creating. New Testament says, Jesus says, I am making all things, what? That sounds like very creational language, doesn't it? Like a creating God is still creating. Maybe not another earth. Maybe he's not blowing and, and, and something happens or speaking and something happens and he's gathering the dust around and he spits in it and forms it and here another person comes up. Maybe that's not what he's doing exactly, but yet he still can be still creating, still moving. We also know is that Jesus, as we look at 
who he is and how important he is to this story because so many people say, you know, the only thing I worry about is the New Testament. I don't worry about the Old Testament. The Old Testament's old. I think about the New Testament. That's the good stuff. That's Jesus and heaven and the Holy Spirit and all that stuff, except Jesus, he himself focused on the Old Testament too because the whole story is important. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it tells us that Jesus was there. In the beginning was the Word. You'll notice in your scriptures that Word is capitalized, meaning he's not talking about just a literal Word. It's not God speaking. That is often used to just to talk about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's that Trinitarian idea, even though the Holy Spirit's not mentioned in that verse. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, talking about Jesus, this Word And without him has not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus created. I mean, God spoke, and Jesus made it happen. Jesus was there in the beginning. He didn't just appear one Christmas morning in a a manger. Jesus has been here the whole time. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed to the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus has been a part of this story from the beginning. If you've never read Genesis with Jesus in mind, you have missed these other passages of Scripture that help us have that whole Bible theology. Jesus is the one who did the creating. God spoke and Jesus made it happen. Nothing was created that was not created through Jesus. Jesus is central to the entire story of Scripture. And then as we come, and we're not going to read through all of Genesis 1, you can go back and read it if you haven't already. We find this is, these are the six days of creation in which we find day one. We have light. And you find that in verses 3 through 5. Next, here we go. Next slide. Day two, we're separating the heavens from the earth. The earth is currently covered with water, Genesis 1, 6 through 8. Day 3, dry gra- <coughs> vegetation. God creates the boundaries and removes the water and creates their boundaries, and the dry ground appears, and he creates all vegetation, verses 9 through 13. Day 4, he then creates the sun, the moon, and the stars, or firmament, as some of your scriptures talk about, in which he creates different lights for different times of the day. The sun by day to light the darkness, the moon and the stars by night to light the darkness. He did all of that on day four. Day five, then in verses 20 through 23, birds and sea animals. Day six, land animals and humans after God's own image, which then they elaborate more fully in Genesis 2. We'll talk about that next week. But that's verses 24 through 31, land animals and humans. And then it's important after all this creation for us to come, and this should be a theological founding point for you as well. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So what was good? Somebody tell me. What was good? 
creation. What else? Yeah, everything. Us. We were good. I know. It's so surprising, isn't it? Like God was like, you guys are like awesome. Just as you are. You know, because he never says that again in scripture until Jesus comes, right? You know, it's like, wow. Can we just stop right here? Sometimes as my kids get older, I play them in sports and stuff. And I used to be able to beat them handily and now not so much. And I like get one point up. Okay, time to quit. <laughs> you know, can we just stop right here? I mean, I feel good right now. Sometimes how we want to read Genesis. Why couldn't we just stop here? Can we just stay in the garden? I mean, why did they have to eat those trees? God, why did you have to put the trees in the garden for crying out loud? I'm jumping ahead, I know. We could have saved all this, all this drama we could have saved if you had just not put those trees there. Well, we're going to have to talk about that. Why did God put those trees there? Because you know what? God knows that too. I don't think God sat up in heaven saying, oh, I should have listened to Jesus. I should not have put those trees there. Oh, look what I've done. I just don't think that's a conversation that went up on in heaven. And so if that's not the conversation that went on in heaven, and God is more intentional than that, then we have to then unpack and understand why that is. What does that mean for all of our story, our history, our own faith? God saw everything that was been made. And behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heaven and the earth were finished. Chapter 2, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And there is chapter 1 of Genesis, and just the very beginning of chapter 2 as it closes out on day 7. Day 7, the Sabbath of rest, which we could probably do a whole series on that. Our need for it, you were created for it. You were not created to live life without rest. Your intention to live life without rest is against God's design for you. You have to have rest. Now, we all have, myself included, the ways we rationalize why we don't rest. Most of the time, we could rest. If we were a little more intentional ourselves, that's for another day. All right, here's what I want to here's what I want to finish out today with that. I hope will paint the picture where we're going for the next few weeks. I want you to remember consistently God is in the in the business of new beginnings. Wherever you are today, whatever you're going through, whatever mistakes you've made, no matter what people think of you, what your family thinks of you, what your coworkers think of you, what you think of yourself. God is in the business of new beginnings. He always has been. He always will be. God is in the business of new beginnings. I want to, a second thing I want you to take from this, and I want you to see as we move forward in these next few weeks, that God meets you where you are, not where you were or where you hoped you were, but where you are, and he is still making all things new, no matter where you are, if you're giving up hope on whatever You think God has promised you or said to you. God is still doing work in your life. He meets you where you are. 
We can be dishonest with everyone on the planet. We cannot be dishonest with God. We can put a mask on in front of everyone on the planet. We cannot put a mask on with God. He meets you where you are, not where you were. Man, that was really great, God. Remember that time when? No, He meets you where you are. Or, God, I've made so many mistakes. Yeah, but I'm here with you right here where you are. God, we were going to go do this thing, remember? I blew it. Yeah, but I'm here with you right here. (laughs) Maybe that's the message some of us need to walk away with today. No matter where you are, God is here with you right where you are. Maybe some of you have superstars in your family. You have superstars at work. You have superstars, you listen to their podcasts or you read their blogs and you think, oh, I can't wait till I get to that point. I want to be a superstar. Or maybe you look at them and you say, oh, I'm such a, I'm such a failure compared to them. God meets you right where you are. He's in the business of new beginnings. And what we see all throughout Scripture is that God can bring new life from old death. This is one of the reasons that theologian by the name of Joseph Blenkinsop, he equates not just Genesis 1 through 11, but the theme that you see throughout all of Scripture as a three-part story, similar to what I mentioned just a few minutes ago. Part one, creation. Part two, uncreation. And then part three, recreation. Now we see this in many different places in Scripture. We see even in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, we see this very timeline played out. We see, number one, the creation And then the flood comes, the uncreation. And then Moses and his family walk out of the ark. Yeah, who did I say? Moses? He could have too, who knows? I mean, those guys, those guys were tight with God. He could have been there, right? Yeah. Noah, thank you. Walks out with his family and creates new life. We go through most of the rest of the Old Testament. We find another common story. We see the birth of the Hebrew or Israelite nation, Israel. We see the birth of a nation. They stop following God. They go into exile. Temples destroyed. Sometimes the Ark of the Covenant stolen. Uh, that's the uncreation. And then he says, if you will just cry out to me, I will hear you and I will heal you. And we see recreation. Time and time again. That's the whole point of most of the Old Testament. Is to demonstrate that the covenant given by uh, God through Moses to us. Would not work because we would constantly fail at it. But we see time and time again. Exile after exile. We see even Rome coming in. As we've, we've talked about quite a bit in the last year. Birth of a nation. Exile. And then a rebuilding point. One of our favorite places to talk about rebuilding is Nehemiah, where Nehemiah takes the charge and says, I've got to go rebuild the walls in the city of my fathers. How can I sit here and be happy when it's in ruins? 
I've got to rebuild. And we see God orchestrating things so that the nation can be rebuilt. We can look at the whole of the Old Testament in that Old Covenant. We find the Old Covenant is the creation. This is given so that you can know me, that you can find me. And then the impossibility that this can happen, and that's the uncreation. Next slide. That's the uncreation. And then we find the entrance of Jesus, which is the recreation again, the new life through Christ that we can have. Then even in the New Testament, there's still another cycle coming that we haven't fulfilled yet. This new cycle that's coming, Jesus has come. We have salvation through Christ. The world will continue to descend into chaos. People will go after teachers who will tickle their ears and tell them what they want to say. And people will walk away from the faith and there will be a remnant. And then there will come a time in which Jesus will return. Wipe it all away, the uncreation. And then what's going to happen? Somebody tell me. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Recreation. We see this story throughout all of God's story. Now, you may have thought when you came in here today, there was a beginning and there will be an end. And maybe you've looked at your life in this way. There was a beginning, there will be an end. But maybe you need to walk out of here looking at your life in the sense of there was a beginning, it all went crazy, there was an end, and it's going to be rebuilt. And guess what, for those of you who rebuilt, guess what's coming? Uncreation is coming. And so before you give yourself a hard time and you say, it's all my fault and I'm a terrible person, maybe God is doing this because he's telling a bigger story in your life. This is the consistent story we see, not only through all of Scripture, but we see it so succinctly, so clearly in Genesis 1 through 11, which is why I wanted us to spend this time together over these next few weeks. I want you to see the creative nature of God and what he wants to do in your life today. Because this is what he's been doing since the beginning. We're going to see this throughout the stories that you find in these 11 chapters. It's really just an amazing, amazing thing. If I were to leave you with something, I'm going to leave you with these three things. Just a restating of what I've already said. Number one, God doesn't give up on us. Even when we eat from the tree, he told us not to. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't give up on you. That person that you're giving up on right now, God is not. If you feel like you're the one others give up on, God is not giving up on you. God doesn't give up on us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. His love is overwhelming. His mercies are new every day. His grace is, is what spread the way for us to return and to be restored to what he had intended. For those of you who feel stuck, and I know Right now, you probably feel less stuck than at any other time of the year. I don't know when you feel most stuck. Probably like either February or September. I don't know why. But, you know, you got, you know, summer comes. Oh, we're so excited about summer for about a week. And then it's like, oh, when is fall going to get here? Oh, where was fall? What happened to fall? 
Oh, winter. Christmas, yes! New Year! I'm off for new things! February hits. Yeah, it's pretty much the same. Pretty much exactly like last February. God is still doing something new in you. No matter where you are, God is still doing something new in you. And finally, if you'll remember what we read first in Acts chapter 17, God has revealed a story of creation so that we should seek God and perhaps feel our way toward Him and read it with me find him my prayer for us this new year is that nothing would overtake our desire to seek god that even when we i love this imagery kind of feel our way toward him like i don't i don't know if this is right i'm just i'm kind of trying i just i'm seeking him but that ultimately that would end in the place in which we find him. That is my prayer for us this year. And I pray that you would continue through these next 11 chapters because there is much to glean from them and what God has not only done, but what God is continuing to do. Would you pray with me? Father, God, I thank you because you are sovereign. I thank you that your ways are bigger than my ways. I Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. There's so much in your word that are are very hard to understand. And yet you have been patient with us. Sometimes we've been unfaithful. You've been faithful to us. God, I don't know exactly how you did it. I don't know that you even want us to know exactly how you did it. I just know that you did. You created. You brought us into being. And you've been with us ever since. Pray that as we go through these next few weeks together, we would just see a beautiful, wonderful story of a great sovereign God whose love is overwhelming. And the story that you've been telling is one that just makes our hearts jump out of our chests for thankfulness. God, we thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are still offering new beginnings today. That you are still at work in our lives. That you meet us where we are. And you are offering to take us so much farther. Help us to see your work in us. For those who are in the exciting moment of creation in their lives, you're doing something new. They see it, they feel it, they watch it unfold before their very eyes, and it is exciting. Oh, we worship you for those moments. For those who are entering into this period of uncreation, this tearing down, this struggle, oh, let us remember that there's still something coming and that you have a purpose in the uncreation. And all the prayers, the worship, uh, the beating hearts, the rapid pulse of those who are coming out of that moment of uncreation and they're just maybe starting to glimpse 
You are doing something new again, and it is exciting. Oh, we worship you for that. I pray for those today who feel stuck. They question everything I've said today. That you're not really doing anything new. That you're not really (coughs) invested in their story. That you're not taking them somewhere. Oh, I pray that you would give them a glimpse of your sovereignty. Just the beauty of your greatness. And they can trust you. And no matter what's going on within our lives, you have said, I will be with you. So God, we thank you that you are with us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.